0: Welcome to the, uh, the news desk. We are going to be covering the election. (laughs) Yeah. Today with David (laughs) McPherson. We all need distraction. Let's talk about something else.
1: Yeah, Yeah. definitely.
0: So David, you're taking guitar lessons.
1: Yeah, I had for a while, uh, off and on. I just started them again, kind of midway through the pandemic here. Figured, uh, Help motivate me a bit. My son takes them, so ah. Tr- try and uh, you know be able to get caught up with him. For sure, I that's just picked
0: it. up a, a guitar for the first time ever on mm. Saturday. Okay, so my fingers are hurting right now.
1: No, that's a good thing. Yeah,
0: is it okay? I just want to make sure people. He's, told he's me never this. worked so
1: hard
2: in his life.
0: Yeah.
1: David yeah. He's never worked so. Hard. <laughs>
0: Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find him at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery.
1: Hi, I'm David McPherson, author of The Legendary Horseshoe Tavern, A Complete History. Welcome to the Music
2: welcome 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 awesome <laughs> i glad to have you with us i know uh i know you and i connected on twitter a while ago and a couple of years ago i guess now probably um probably through bedini i think yeah and through some of the conversations there and you know i've been really excited um to get you on here so we can have a conversation about you know the book and you know what you're working on as well i'm really really excited to have you here
1: oh i'm really excited to be here thanks for having me guys
2: thanks I actually want to, I actually want to start this off um, and share with you i 'm going to mute my phone so it 's not beeping in the background here. Uh, I think Kareem probably got the same beep um, so I want to share a quick story and it 's going back how old am i so it 's going back about fifty five years, and a woman named not Irene Tilsten at that point moved to spadina and college I believe it is. And she meets this guy Peter Tilston, and they go on dates to the Horseshoe Tavern.
1: And that's how—that's awesome.
2: how, that's how I not maybe not how I came to be, but that's a yeah, well, story I wanted man. to start off with this yeah. because there's so much history to it, and um, you know perhaps I'm here because of the Horseshoe Tavern as well, huh? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah well, you never know, and I—I—I I, I do think that that's quite appropriate to start with that because. That's what I found uh, throughout my research and talking to so many musicians and just general, uh, you know, music fans like yourselves that, you know, have been to shows there that uh, going back that far, there's so many different generations of people who either, you know, went to university in Toronto and, you know, that was one of the, the places they frequented or grew up in the city and then moved away or, uh, like basil donovan uh you know he talks about his his parents going there and coming home and telling them about the concerts they saw and you know so it's neat when you get that uh multi-generation thing happening and uh, uh that that's what i find so fascinating and like you said who knows if uh you know your being here <laughs> has a part of it i mean i'm uh, you know people have been married there and uh uh i know i know grant lawrence uh you know, uh, he and uh, Joe Barber, that's that's where they met, uh, I understand. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it a special place in, in many ways, as a meeting place as well.
2: Yeah. And it's funny, too, because you talk about, like, generational stories. You know, fast forward to a couple of years ago, and myself and my kids, and I think we went and saw Ill Scarlet over the Christmas holidays a couple of years back at the Horseshoe. And I remember saying to my son, who's now 25, so he would have been, like, 23 or whatever at the time, I remember saying okay, think about the checkerboard floors. And he's like, yeah, why? And I go, look down. And he's just like, whoa. And he got goosebumps. I got goosebumps just thinking about it. Because again, you know, the the, the the history, the mystique, the stories. And so now there's, you know, from grandparent to grandchild
1: enjoying the horseshoe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that's what I love about telling these stories. And what has always fascin- fascinated me about history is, you know, and the importance of, especially in this time uh, we're living through in the pandemic. I mean, as we all know, uh, venues like the Horseshoe are, are the ones that have been hurt almost uh, the hardest in terms of small businesses. And, you know, you, you hate to see these places close that uh, really a lot of them are cultural institutions in, in the cities where they are. And, uh, you know, without them, um, you know, these next generations, as you, you mentioned, they won't had those memories uh, to share and and, Mm -hmm. uh, be able to experience uh, these places that, you know, their parents or grandparents did. Mm -hmm.
0: Nice. I didn't know this was going to be a podcast about (laughs) Greg's family. (laughs) 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 Their, their relationship with, with the horseshoe, uh, with the horseshoe tavern. Um, Greg, do you happen to,
2: to know what, what sort of shows they, they saw? Actually, they, they 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 said they if they saw shows they don't remember bands they just more went for drinks like casual like a date mm-hmm. or a drink uh, probably in the front well actually back then it probably went in the whole room the whole room but anyway yeah no they would go for just a couple of drinks
1: and either to start before dinner or whatever yeah, yeah. well that that's another neat side of the horseshoe that you know some people they they. <laughs> probably have never stepped foot in that back room. Right. I mean, you know, for us uh, music lovers, I mean, that, that's what the horseshoe means more is, you know, going through that front bar, you know, maybe you'll stop there or mingle there before the show, have a drink, but it's getting to that back room and uh, you know, watching a great live performance, but there is lots of people that, uh, you know, it's more a watering hole or a a meeting, a local local, uh, for them, a place to go after work or like your parents, like you said, they, Maybe stopped in there for a drink because they lived in the neighborhood and, you know, that went on somewhere else. Mm -hmm.
0: It was it was interesting uh, seeing some of the photos in the book and the description of the venue. And I'm like, uh, again, I was telling Greg earlier, you know, I uh, I haven't been to many shows in in smaller venues. I've been to uh, two in the past, you know, pre-COVID in the past year before that. And I remember sort of, you know, you got to squeeze through the bar area almost to get to, oh, oh God, there's some space here in the back. Um, So it was really interesting to see that, you know, probably people like Greg's parents have a different idea if they haven't been to the horseshoe in many years, what the horseshoe is.
1: Right. For sure. I mean, because at one time it was was probably double the size. Yeah. Yeah. and it had a different layout and there was tables in there. I mean, if you go back and look in the, uh, the early 70s of the and Tom Connors movie that you could probably find on YouTube, you know, that gives you a little bit of a sense of because you can see there's, you know, tables crammed all right in front of the stage and, uh, you know, people drinking the little stubby beer bottles and uh, ashtrays on the table, that kind of thing. So it was definitely a different vibe uh, uh, for sure. Oops. Why did you, David, decide
0: to? And the book's been out a couple of years now, I think.
1: Um, Yeah, hard to believe. Yeah, it came out uh, just three years ago. uh, Yeah. Last month or so. Yeah.
0: Why did you decide to write it in the first place?
1: Well, I've always had a love of history and a love of live music and always wanted to write a book. And it was kind of a. You know, all these things kind of came together in a way. I was out at the Dakota Tavern one night and I met a fellow journalist. We got chatting and just mentioned my interest in, you know, wanting to write a book on music someday. And he goes, oh, I know this publisher, uh, Dundurn, that's looking to get more in doing some music titles. I I could pass on, you know, the editor's name. And yeah, one thing led to another. I kind of had the idea of The Horseshoe as a book. I was surprised that nothing had ever been done and I knew the 70th anniversary was coming up. Uh, so I thought there's a good peg, good angle. And, uh, yeah, I pitched it to the publisher and surprising they, they already, their sales team had already kind of threw that idea out there. So in a way it was a little kind of fortuitous, uh, you know, right place, right time a bit, but, uh, you know, I, I've, Feel, you know lucky and humbled that uh, the success it's had and uh, the support i've got for uh, you know since this book came out from you know just regular fans yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: uh you know to the musician community and the the music industry community so uh i i'm glad i did it and uh you know it's one of those uh just to talk about that or uh, example when i had my book launch at the horseshoe uh in October a few years ago and, uh, you know, Jim Cuddy showed up and, you know, while I was signing books and, you know, I basically, I said, you know, thank Tim for, for writing the forward. And he really said, no, thank you for writing this book. And uh, you know, that was something to hear, you know, a musician of his stature and all, a lot of the musicians that were there that night, or I've run into since, I mean, a lot of them are said that, like thanking me for, cause I guess like we talked about, you know, at the start of the conversation, it, it By having a a document like this now, at least it it helps to keep this place alive and uh, uh, for future generations, right? You you hope that it will still be around, you know, when my grandkids, right, or your grandkids or their kids.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, but you never know, right? And that's what this pandemic has showed. There's been so many venues that have closed and, you know, a lot of them are hanging on by, uh, you know, every ounce of the luck that they can and uh you know hopefully that you know the these venues will will survive uh, it's interesting
2: because you know not fast forward to the last chapter because i want to get into much more in between but even you know to to your point the last chapter you know you're, you're saying you know who knows what's in store you know i think um lasty and had like five more years, or potentially whatever had just renewed the lease, I believe at the time, or something along that lines, and mm-hmm. you know it's interesting to say that or to read that, and then here we are,
1: we're in this middle of this pandemic, so yeah um, yeah, yeah, and, and no one could could have that. yeah, no one could have fathomed and what this would do, and as we all know, the you know live music is probably one of the last things that will be able to come back whenever this uh, and back the way we kind of like to enjoy it, right? uh with with larger crowds and that. It, it still is going to be quite a while. So Was this this was your first book, right, David? Yes, it was.
0: Yeah. Nice. Was it, how, like tell me about sort of, you know, diving into writing a book with with uh with with no experience of this kind. Uh, you know, where did you start?
1: Yeah, it was it was a little overwhelming at first. I, uh, I think once I signed the contract and I, I met with the uh, with Jeff uh, Cohen and Craig at the Horseshoe, uh, you know, we had lunch at the Rivoli one day because I wanted to make sure they were on board and understood, you know, my approach. And from there, it was, uh, you know, once they were they had bought in, uh, you know, they kind of suggested some people I, I should talk to. And, and they started hooking me up with the, those people and so I kind of started i I, I had to put together a, a proposal that kind of had a, a chronological here's what the book's gonna look like uh, so having that outline certainly helped uh, but basically I kind of started off with kind of a list of people I wanted to talk to and then it was one of those things uh, you know I've been a journalist for over 20, 25 years and uh, you know what do you do as a journalist you, you asked try and ask great questions and uh, as I interviewed people and asked different uh, questions uh, you know it led to more interviews and more oh you should talk to this person or you know have you have you thought about talking to them or have you looked down this uh this angle or that so you know I really focused on the research and the interviews and what I told people that uh, I, I'm a great procrastinator. And, uh, I think that helped for a while that I was just like, oh, I'll just keep doing interviews. I'll just, you know, that I don't have to write this thing. Right. Uh, so I kind of kept that at bay, but that's where, you know, finally my <laughs> wife, my wife was like, you know, you, you better uh, start writing this thing. Uh, you know, have you started writing your book yet kind of thing? And, oh no, I got, I got one more interview to do. So, uh, but th- that's kind of how it started. And then eventually I was, I, in a way you know, some might start more chronological and right from the beginning. Um, but the way I did it with this book, it was uh, I kind of felt once I decided I had enough information, say it was like on the country era. Or it was I'd interviewed a lot of people. I just started writing that chapter. I just got to get, you know, get something down on the page. And I didn't worry about it, you know, writing it from start to finish kind of thing. Um, right. It was more, you know, what what I felt at that particular moment. Uh, and you know, then I pieced it all together uh, afterwards. There's there's a
2: lot of there's a lot of history talk about, sort of the country time. Like a lot of the book is focused on, not focused on that, but there's a huge chunk of that. Yeah, um, and I, I find it really interesting because you know I'm you know being a musician from the late '80s, mid '80s to early '90s. You know, that's the time that I know. Whereas my wife was saying that she really wants her dad to dive deep into those early years and that he would Mm -hmm. completely geek out over some of those stories. Cause I mean, you went, you went pretty deep in some as not aspects, but in some, some of the stories like, you know, how were you able to dig out since it was so long ago, some of those amazing pieces of history?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, first off, yeah, that country period, uh, I guess, it was the part when a lot of people ask me what had surprised you the most or what did you learn or what mm-hmm. fascinated you? I, 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 often refer to that because uh, like yourself, I mean, my experience with the horseshoe was, you know, my time living in Toronto, uh, you know, from the kind of late nineties, you know, to the late two thousands. And that was kind of the horseshoe I knew. Plus, you know, what I'd heard a bit before, but I didn't know a lot about the, the whole beginnings and the whole country uh, origins of it so really to get there it was again digging out those sources so you know starting with the uh, uh the original owner uh his daughter uh his grandson you know who had some of those memories and then going back into uh archives of the globe and mail toronto star uh you know city of toronto archives and and then like i said it, it basically i might have talked to one person Uh, who then put me on to someone else. Right. So I I talked like, as an example, I think I talked to uh, Russell DeCarl, who was in Prairie Oyster and he knew of this photographer that had taken shots and had been around way back, you know, in the the sixties and that time period. So he was able to give me a lot of great stories. And then, you know, I talked to him and he says, Oh, have you, I can hook you up with this artist who was in the house band back then. So, you know, it, that's kind of how it happened. And, you know, little by little piece stuff together. And uh, yeah, it was to me, like I said, that was the fascinating part that, you know, to think, you know, all these Nashville uh, Grand old Opry stars like Loretta Lynn, little Jimmy Dickens, Charlie Pride, Ernest Tubb, all these guys, they, they made regular stops at the horseshoe. And then later on, uh, you know, all into the seventies, that continued with a lot of the you know outlaw country movement with the Willie Nelsons and Waylon Jennings, and uh, you know the late Jerry Jeff Walker, who just passed away recently. So, were you were you a country fan prior to your your research, David? Uh, yeah, I'd say I, I am. A, you know, country music, like <laughs> all labels of genres, it's like. Okay. I, I wouldn't say I'm a mainstream country or what you hear on the radio these days, but i kind of wow. i kind of got into country uh kind of through that back door of alter- what they called alternative country uh back in the nineties you know discovering bands like uncle Tupelo and uh you know the jayhawks and and those kind of bands but then through that that's how I went back and started discovering you know the Willie nelsons and uh artists like that. So I, I'd say yeah, I do enjoy country. It's all depends, you know, what uh, type of country it is. And uh, uh I, I've always loved pretty much all styles of music, but you know, uh some of these artists that I I did research on, I mean, that was part of it too. I'd I'd go back and you know I'm a big vinyl collector and you know I'd buy some of these records just uh because I thought you know was hearing about some of these artists that had played the horseshoe that I really didn't know a lot about. Right. Uh, like, uh, Bill Anderson and, uh, like I said, Ernest Tubb or people I'd heard the name, but really didn't know their music. So, uh, you know, it was a good way to kind of expand my uh, musical tastes a little bit as well. A lot of eBay research,
0: I'm sure to get some of those
1: <coughs> copies
0: of vinyl.
1: Yeah. And just, yes. Yeah, uh, looking in, uh, you know the bins of the various uh, record stores uh, throughout Toronto. Uh, yeah, sure. It was always a, a, a good time.
2: One of the things that um, you touched on there, uh, a short bit there, was um, around the house bands, and that's one of the things I found really fascinating from the book. And again, as a musician, I know it, but I, you know, I don't, I don't think of the house band per se. Like I mean, I think it was the story of Stomp and Tom and the house band. And then when he came back, there was a different house band and they didn't get along. And so, you know, they brought back in, I think it was, I think it was a bit of a star at the time brought back in the other house band. Right. And like, I found that so interesting to listen to and think about from that perspective that, you know, I just, I don't really think of that. If I think of a house band, I think of a band that plays, you know, at a, a hotel lounge. I don't think of the band that's backing all these famous musicians that you talk about that are coming up from Nashville and I thought it was
1: fascinating. Yeah. But yeah, I, like you said, uh, that was something uh, for me as well was a bit of a revelation. And uh, one of the, one of the gentlemen I was able to interview uh, was a member of the house band uh, Johnny Burke. And the best story he told uh, was how he had to learn these songs you know, for he he basically listened to his radio late at night and, and listened to these songs of these, uh, you know, coming in from Nashville or, you know, Wheeling, West Virginia or wherever it was and, uh, tr- you know, trying to get it. So when they came, he was prepared. Right. Because that's how it worked. Uh, you know, they were expected. Often these bands couldn't afford to bring, you know, the whole whole crew uh, when they went on tour. So that's kind of the way it often worked. There'd be a local band that. uh you know, would would learn all the star songs and, and, you know, back them up for the week. I'm wondering, did any of these bands sort of take off and join the artist uh,
0: on the road rather than stay at the horseshoe? Did you come across anything like that?
1: I, I didn't, actually, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't doubt if, uh, you know, the odd player here or there, I mean, it might have led to some side gigs, uh, right, or some session work, that kind of thing, for sure.
2: One of the other things I thought was fascinating again to think of as a musician was they talked about was the change the 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 change from a musician's perspective from a paid engagement to part of the door and and I think like that's what we did as we played for part of the door you know um that was another shift sort of that I I, that for me that, that you caught that was as much about the time the shift in the time than it was necessarily specifically the horseshoe that I found fascinating
1: uh, for sure and and that's what uh, I think was interesting about this as well and I tried to do it wasn't just about a venue right it was about how that venue uh, spoke for kind of the the entire music ecosystem and and artists and and how uh, things changed and have evolved and and examples like that about the way artists were paid and some of those things it was clubs. Like the horseshoe that kind of uh, led the way and uh, you know made these changes what was um
2: when you think of the evolution because you, you do cover you know significant evolution over time of different you know not only different owners, not only different bookers but even the sound like I like I think of my probably my favorite punk band, my favorite punk frontman. Frankie Venom and Teenage Head and like that story, like that's, that's so the opposite of not opposite, but it's so counter to a lot of the history of the club. Mm -hmm. Um, Like how did, how did you find that in terms of like, you know, just having to sort of, it was almost, almost jump around in those genres, if that makes sense. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that was the neat thing that uh, the Horseshoe Tavern, unlike some clubs, uh, you know, it has evolved and has pretty much seen every, every style of music in there. Right. As, as you mentioned, it's gone from country to punk uh, to blues to, you know, the singer songwriter uh, you know, it's even had reggae in there. You know, it's, it, it, you can't really pigeonhole it to one genre, even though, you know, probably in more recent years, it's become known for kind of alternative rock or alt country or some, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, overall, uh, I wanted to try and capture that uh, in the in the book. And I, I think that is a challenge with writing a book like this. There's always m- many more stories that could be told. And, uh, you know, I'm sure like you referenced the early part. I, uh that was uh, partly due to the interviews I was able to conduct and the time period and what fascinated me, I guess, too, that I thought uh, readers would find fascinating. But, uh, you know, there would be lots more probably now that I, I could even tell from, you know, the, the 90s, 2000s on, uh, even since yeah. this book has come out, right? I mean, since it's been published three years ago, I mean, yeah. so many people have said, oh, did you you know, what about this story or you know, did you hear about this? And I, I think that's a challenge with something like this. And uh, I joked, uh, you know, throughout uh, my promotion of this book is, uh, you know, the the title is a bit of a misnomer that it's a legendary horseshoe tavern, a complete history, because, you know, there's no such thing as a complete history. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> yeah there, there's a lot of stories for sure uh, to be told. A couple of things I want to bring up. Uh, you'll, you'll realize David, after you hang up with us, that we're not professional interviewers. We tend to jump around yeah. all over the place, but uh, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, backing bands and uh, I heard a story recently. Uh, Conan O'Brien was, uh, was speaking with uh, Bruce Springsteen who, uh, who just came out with, with a new album. I haven't heard it yet, but I've heard glowing reviews mm-hmm. uh, about it. Some of his best work I've been told, but um Conan was talking about he, Conan had a house band called the Max Weinberg seven. Mm. Uh, And we, we know Max Weinberg being uh, the drummer uh, for the E street band, which is um, uh, Bruce Springsteen's uh, band. And uh, Conan was telling these stories on, on how Bruce Springsteen used to call up Conan and go, Hey, I'm going on tour. Is it okay if I borrow Max Mm. (laughs) from you? And Conan's going. You're the boss. He's your drummer. <laughs> I'm borrowing him from my house band. You know this little gig here that this little TV show that nobody watches. You can have him. He's your <laughs> yeah. drummer. Just when you're done, let me know, and I'll ask Max if he wants to join us. So, that's interesting about uh, how we think of uh, of uh, of house bands these days. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, well, Max, uh, I believe played played the horseshoe. Uh a couple years ago. Uh,
0: nice. Probably yeah. blew the roof off of that. That guy drums harder than anyone I know. Yeah. He really goes after it. But I wanted to ask you, David, you know, because, you know, obviously I, I don't want to sort of brush it under the table. You know, we, we are still in, in some form of uh, of lockdown. And, you know, you talked about places like the horseshoe being, um, you know, one of the places in Toronto, specifically because it's a venue, but generally because it's a venue, it's a bar that relies on people coming inside
2: mm-hmm.
0: and spending money inside. Um, I'm wondering if you've heard any sort of, you know, stories from the Horseshoe or other venues uh, across Toronto on how they're doing, how they're adapting um, or anything like that.
1: Well, I I still, I know the, uh, the owners of the horseshoe well, and I kind of follow them a bit on social media and talk to them once in a while, but, uh, I know it's been a, a real struggle for them. Um, like, like all venues, uh, you know, the, once the pandemic hit and, uh, you know, they were forced to close back in March and, uh, you know, then they were able to reopen, but with certain restrictions, they had the patio, uh, and, So they were able to open more as a bar, right? Uh, With the patio, they looked at trying to bring in some food to uh, supplement. Uh, But the biggest thing is that a place like the Horseshoe, it is a music bar uh, these days, first and foremost. and, And that's where they make the bulk of their revenue. So the fact that even if they're able to open the front bar, able to have You know, the the sales they get from that versus, you know, a night with a concert and all the, uh, you know, the revenue, you know, from the show, it it can't even come close to comparing. I mean, it's only maybe 30 percent and they still have staff to pay and everything else. And I know there was an article uh, in The Globe uh, just today or yesterday talking about how these clubs, when they do come back, uh, they're going to have to pay you know, higher insurance rates. Oh, insurance
2: to, rates out here are going to go through the roof. Like, so th-
1: these are places that already their margins were pretty slim to begin with. And to suddenly have all these other uh, things happen. I, I know the Horseshoe, uh, the city of Toronto, uh, during this pandemic, uh, there was some uh, legislation passed that gave them a break on their uh, taxes Uh, And I remember seeing uh, Jeff from the Horseshoe post something and say that was like a savior for us. That kind of bought us some more time, basically. Right. But I mean, beyond that, I I live in Kitchener, Waterloo now where I grew up and uh, already here. uh, The Starlight, which was a, a, a fantastic local venue that all the Canadian bands like the Rio Statics and low so uh, skydiggers you name it over the years have kind of come through and play uh, in uptown warloo it's closed uh, a newer venue that was in downtown kitchener the rhapsody barrel bar closed uh you know right now i'm working on a story uh for amplify which is the national music center's uh kind of online magazine about uh, logan's pub out in victoria that just closed uh, you know last week and I mean, I think, you know, it's not going to end uh, the list of these venues that by the time this pandemic is over, uh, unfortunately, there's going to be more, you know, casualties. I hate to say that, use that word, but, you know, that that's what's going to happen. Uh, I mean, even the ones that are able to, you know, try new things and be nimble and adapt, I, I think there's just so much stacked against them uh, that it will be hard for some of these places to to get through this. It's
2: interesting because there's um, a, one of Durham's favorite bars, the Tartan in Oshawa, and it just closed. My, my kids and oh. the former owners went there um, on Sunday for our last beer. And I was talking because my, my son was lamenting the fact that, my mom, both my kids, my son and my daughter were both lamenting the fact that the Tartan was going to close and, uh, or was closing. And well, the discussion we had, and I don't know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm hoping to look at the positives as, as positive as you can out of it, which is, you know, once we get to the other side of this, is there going to be an opportunity for young people to, like, a renaissance or create new out of some of these existing places? I don't know. I, I'd, yeah. I'd like to think. You know, we've seen we've seen sort of turnover in in the past and generational. So I don't yeah. know.
1: I, yeah, I, the optimist oh. in me, I, I, I'd like to hope that there is. Uh, uh, my my fear is that some of these iconic places uh mm. you know like the troubadour in la or you know that you just hope those places don't uh end up going under and uh you really because of the value of the property there and you know like some people come in and you know want to redevelop it as something else uh but but hopefully uh you think when we come out of this uh eventually there there will be renewed hope but, uh There'll be definitely a lot of musicians with new music to promote and share, and uh, I think there's going to be a real desire uh, for from all of us, right, to yeah. hear live music again. So hopefully, these places will still be around, uh, and maybe some new ones will will come will will develop as well. Yeah.
2: And it's, it's interesting you say that because I think of, you know even cover it in the book in terms of the cost or not the cost, but the value of the property where the horseshoe is right now. I guess Mm -hmm. if, if I think back to sort of, you know, the, the, the renaissances and the the, pre-gentrification of certain areas, like, you know, the big bop could only be the big bop because at that time it wasn't a great area. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, um, amount of, the amount of bars, along that strip along the horseshoe that, you know, really need to, many that are gone, I think of um, the bamboo, Mm -hmm. right? Like that was iconic. Um, So, yeah, I guess, I guess, unfortunately, unfortunately we may not keep the venues, but I'm hoping the spirit and the entrepreneurial spirit will be there for younger people, maybe just in different areas. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's my hope as well. I I really, I think that music uh, is something we all need. It's something that helps heal. And I think that's something this pandemic has shown. I mean, you know, all these stream shows and things that uh, artists have done, it's definitely not the same, but uh, the fact so many people have tuned in and realized, you know, they need that uh, during these times. uh, Like you said, when we come out of this, I think – you know, there will be some some more of these young entrepreneurs uh, that and I think the whole business model probably will need to be, uh, you know, examined. And maybe the club as it's run today, uh, a live music venue may not work. There might be other models that, uh, you know, might have to be looked at. But uh, yeah. you know, I'm optimistic for the future, for sure.
0: You nailed it on the head there, David. Um, I, I know we're, we're talking on election Tuesday. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to make any political uh, <laughs> prognostications now, but I think you know there's a couple of things that are against Greg, uh, you and I, and David, you as well, being able to go see uh, live music in these small venues in Toronto. Uh, number one, the taxes on the overpriced or overvalued real estate in Toronto mm-hmm. uh, is going to make sure, unfortunately, that there's going to be little to no venues uh, left. You know, there, you know, I don't know whether an indie band is going to want to play in a, in a library room um, or, or will they be able to afford to play, um, you know, larger venues, Right. Uh, and, and then you've got artists over the past six, seven, eight months figuring out ways of performing via live stream, uh, engaging with their fan base over social uh, and things like Bandcamp and CD Baby, you know, helping out artists. Uh, and, and then you've got, uh, you know, the ability to to collect, uh, you know, whether it's donations or fees or, or sort of online tickets through places like Twitch, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think in Toronto specifically, I think things are going to change. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, as soon as things open up after the pandemic, that there'll be no more live music because everything's going to be closed down regardless, but I think we're seeing a change. And this pandemic is sort of forcing artists, forcing venues, unfortunately, to make sort of hard hard decisions and, and, and hard choices.
1: Um, I hope you're wrong. So, I hope you're yeah, wrong. Not
0: necessarily. Yeah. Yes, I hope I'm Debbie, wrong Debbie well.
2: Downer? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> David's got a gun he's all bummed out. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: No, but uh, I think uh, one of the, to, to one of your uh, it is about being nimble. I think that's a, one thing that this pandemic has taught all of us. It doesn't matter if we're the arts – uh, or what sector, what uh, industry we're involved in, but specifically to live music. I mean, people have had to adapt and realize, hey, I, I, if I'm an, a musician, I, I'm normally on the road 200 days a year. You know, I I, I can't, you know, I, I, I can't tour anymore. What am I going to do? Well, let's give this live streaming a try. Uh, and like you said, the, the fans, I think that's one of the things that uh, – has been a real silver lining here that musicians, you know, you don't have to be the Taylor Swift, uh, you know, or the Shawn Mendes. Uh, those people are always going to have, you know, the super fans, but, you know, these smaller bands, smaller artists, singer songwriters, they've realized now over the years, they've built up s- such a following of fans. And during this time, like you said, whether it's through band camp and, uh, or whether it's uh you know through them online just putting out a call uh you know to donate some money through you know some kind of uh uh campaign uh it, it's amazing that's what i've heard And artists i've talked to, to to see that these fans have really come to the table and supported them uh, and so yeah. so that's a real positive i think uh for sure greg talked earlier on about
0: being a uh did you see recovering musician Greg or former musician? Recovering. <laughs> recovering, recovering, recovering musician. Uh, he won't tell you that uh, they came up at the same time as the tragically hip, managed by uh, the uh, the legendary Jake Gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I will say that. Uh, but I know Greg. You guys were based out of Oshawa, and uh, you you did say you know you bought buses over. I remember you telling me. Do
1: you
0: did you guys ever play? The Horseshoe back
2: in the day. No, no, we never ended up playing The Horseshoe. It's funny because Jeff, our singer for our band, his mom knew Kenny and X-Ray well. Mm. In fact, Jeff Jeff tells a story of coming home as a teenager, I guess it's a young teenager, um, from the cottage, and there's Kenny and X-Ray and the band Moxie, which is Mike Reno before (laughs) it was Loverboy, on his on his front lawn in, in Oshawa. I have all them a few a few few too many pints in. Anyway, years later, we reached out to Kenny uh, to see if we can play the horseshoe or somewhere. And I think I think he ended up putting us in at the Riv at the time. Mm. Um, but I never played the horseshoe. We did X rays. We did. I think yeah. I think my last gig was X rays. Um, yeah. And you, you you talk about it a bit in the book, but it'd be interesting to know what what you came up with you know, around the other clubs, not just the ones that, that Kenny and X-Ray owned, but mm-hmm. you know, like even Lee's palace, which is obviously not part of the main group, but you know, what, what did you find out about other clubs while you were, while you were researching the book?
1: Well, you touched on the one, I mean, that was a fascinating part. I didn't know is how at that certain point the horseshoe was in trouble and uh, Kenny and X-Ray uh, came in uh, along with Richard Crook and uh, you know, the three of them kind of, you know, brought the horseshoe into a new era. And part of that, they got so successful, they opened up these other clubs, right? I mean, like you said, their x-ray had its own place. You know, there was the ultrasound. Um, and so that that part of it was, was fascinating to see how, you know, it, it spawned these other clubs yeah. uh, during that time. Uh, but the other thing, I mean, in talking to artists, uh, like uh, you mentioned earlier about the bamboo and places like that, uh, sometimes you think too many clubs is uh, is not a good thing. As a club owner, you think oh, that's more competition. But the reality was at one point in time, there was enough to go around. And, and having all those other clubs, it, it forced you to kind of bring your game up, I think, a bit more. And 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 yeah. some of them were kind of niche uh, as well. But it also allowed the artists, because I think at one point in time, the, the local musicians, like the Blue Rodeo, they could only play uh you know so many dates within a month at a certain club so you know they could do that rotation then where there's enough clubs around that they they if they wanted to play a few more gigs in town they they could you know just have more options so yeah yeah
2: it, it, we had we had such a i, I think in the 80s and the 90s and you know izzy and the cabana room and like there were just so many great little little rooms to play I'm not say little, but you know what I mean? There were so many, I mean, I guess they were little relatively speaking compared to like the horseshoe, but there were just, you know, to your point, you know, we could, we could almost play under a pseudonym name and just bounce Mm -hmm. around and just, just cut our chops throughout the week. Right. Like just practice the tunes and get it and then head to Lee's. And, you know, as KK said, Kareem said about, you know, bringing in a couple of busloads from Durham college Mm -hmm. on a Saturday night. And Craig Morrison would love us for that yeah right um yeah yeah, anyway yeah it's um so it was uh, such a great such a great time in live music in toronto for sure for sure so so segueing that into your new project or your your current project i guess you know tell us about the book you're doing around massey hall because you know there's another venue building with such a storied history
1: yeah well i guess after this book came out uh And I thought, hey, you know, I guess I can do this. I I wrote a book. uh, I I thought, what next? Uh, And, you know, again, I thought, well, I, how can I be the one to write this? I'm sure I'm not the first one in the, you know, that's proposed a book in Massey Hall. And uh, surprisingly, well, well before the horseshoe and book and all this came about, I mean, many years ago, when I first thought of writing a book, Massey Hall was the first place I thought of. And, At the time, I I discovered there was a book that had already been written uh, to coincide with its centennial uh, back in 1995. So I kind of pushed it aside. Right. This was late 90s, probably. And I thought, well, that's too soon for another book. Uh, But, you know, flash ahead this many years and after this book. And I thought, why not pitch it again to the publisher? Uh, they thought it was a good idea. And again, another place where I have a lot of special memories, uh, especially going to see a lot of shows with my dad, uh, you know, in the last uh, decade and a half or so. Are you still
0: with? Oh, he's
1: gone. Oh, he's come back. David, you with us? Yeah, now I am. I don't know what happened there, but. Okay. Yeah.
0: Greg Greg was yeah. asking what you thought of the, uh, the hockey game last. No, he wasn't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't
2: know. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, but you were de- you were you were talking a bit about you know the, the the research and the history of 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 Massey Hall and um yeah it's it's uh you know I mean I've seen so many shows there over the years and it's just like just you know uh, anyway I'm I'm really looking forward to the book to that <laughs> book as well because um, you know I can only imagine where you're going go so, so yeah. to go with it
1: because you've got so much to go with. Yeah, well, that, that again, is a challenge as, you know, as a writer, you're always faced with that, uh, especially when dealing with history. There, Those are the choices you have to make, what to include, what to not include, and uh, what to focus on. But, uh, you know, I I've luckily, this pandemic has given me a bit more time to, to spend with it. I mean, originally, the book was going to come out uh, this fall, uh, was the initial publication date. But, uh, I mean... As it stands right now, Massey Hall probably won't open till sometime next fall. So uh, that's what we're planning to try and coincide with the the reopening of the the re- revitalized uh, Massey. And so, you know, I, I'm working away. I'm kind of in the editing phase right now, and uh, you know, then I'll be kind of finalizing the photos. And yeah, it's 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 exciting. It's uh, and I, I can't wait till uh, the hall reopens. I mean, they just. Earlier this week, uh, you know, they unveiled some of the, the work that's been done with the facade outside and, you know, the original Massey Music Hall uh, etched uh, in the, the, the bricks. Uh, that's back with some of the original stained glass windows in and, you know, all the renderings I've seen. And I was fortunate to get in there for a few tours as a construction. I was going to ask you if you had a chance to yeah. get inside. Well. Yeah, so I had a few tours. Uh, uh before the pandemic and yeah it's just it's yeah. like you said pretty special uh you know i'm confident that uh you know there's some people that were worried you know it's such a reverential place and uh that they're going to mess with that but everything i've seen it's really about taking uh you know the history of the place and all the the elements people love and just you know modernizing it and bringing it to a new level and then adding a lot of amenities that really were lacking and needed uh right uh, in the 21st century yeah yeah so david sure.
0: as you know we, we've got uh about 10 minutes with you um i'm, I'm interested in, in in this i wanted to ask, actually before i get to that i in your book you talked about the horseshoe at there was a point in time i don't know if it was the 70s did did they change their name at one point in time to Lee's, or did i misread that
1: no, that that happened uh, in kind of, that was the early 80s. Early it 80s. was a, a really rough time, uh, you know, for the horseshoe. And uh, yeah, they basically went bankrupt. And uh, that was one of those uh, sad uh, times where, unfortunately, a lot of the old early memorabilia from like those country days, right? Apparently there used to be photos on the wall, Right. You go into some of these venues and places with all the artists. And uh, as you know, at Massey Hall, as an example, right down the centuries bar, uh, you know, with pictures of the artists signed, you know, thanks, Massey, whatever. I mean, I think there was a lot of that uh, stuff that, you know, it, it all went off in an auction and uh, no one ever found out where, you know, where this stuff went. Uh, but the, in, the important thing or uh, the great news is that it was really short lived uh that's when you know the original owner jack Starr kind of came back and as i mentioned earlier recruited uh you know kenny sprackman uh who he knew uh you know had a good business acumen and had run other clubs uh like the hotel isabella and uh he brought in x-ray and yeah you know they ever since then uh you know that little blip uh, is is what it is. So it's just a little well, blemish in the history, yeah, yeah. and a lot of people like to just, uh, you know, forget about it. But uh, it, it was it was part of the history, and it, it that's an example that you know, if it had gone another way, I mean, you know, the horseshoe as we know it, and I think all of us talking here tonight, we never would have, uh, you know, ever gone and seen a show there. So and that would have been uh, tragic. So for sure, let's
0: go around the table. I want to get your Your favorite concert at both the Horseshoe and Massey Hall. So uh, let's start with Greg.
2: My favorite concert, probably Massey Hall would have been my first time there. Um, And I don't go to concerts by myself. It would have been probably 82, maybe. And it was to see Depeche Mode. All right. And that was... I got goosebumps, uh, keyboardist. So you got to give me that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> favorite show at the, at the shoe. Wow. Uh, I don't know. It could have been like, probably cause, probably cause, well, Steve Davis who owns radical road is one of our sponsors. I don't know if you know Steve Davis or not at oh, all. David um, plays with them um, uh, beyond the flood. Okay um anyway he plays with bedini and all the guys so it's probably this we we'll go back to the sky diggers christmas parties probably i would have to i mean it wasn't the most epic i think yeah, Sate sure. was, was one of the most epic like yes single performances i saw on that stage um but yeah just those those christmas
1: get-togethers they were fun mm-hmm. yeah i can oh, imagine
0: yeah. uh david what,
1: what about yourself uh, it's always a hard question, but, yeah. uh, you know, with Massey Hall, uh, I mean, definitely the Neil Young shows I've seen there. He's, he's always oh. been, he's always oh. been one of my, my idols and, uh, <laughs> you know, I've seen him, uh, probably more than any other artists over the years. Uh, I've gone down to Farm Aid many, many times, but the Massey Hall shows, uh, yeah, were just spectacular, uh, uh, and the one tie was like front row center, I think, for the one show. And I remember the ticket. I've never spent that much for a ticket in my life. And my wife was like, oh, you could have sold it. But I saw him twice in the same week. And, uh, you know, those were the, the shows. Uh, I think back, uh, what was the album that had just come out? Uh, it, it oh, come recent to me. one.
0: That was the... Uh... This
1: was probably about 15 hard to believe yeah 15 years ago plus 2007 i think wasn't it Ever- Lanoise? he did some some shows for Lanoise. he did those and i don't i didn't get to see those but this okay. one was the Cro- the chrome dreams where he did three shows in the one okay. week and i had tickets to two out of the three shows and i remember yeah my wife figured like i could have sold one of the tickets probably for 400 bucks but you know i'll never it, to me that was a memory i'm glad uh-huh. i did it the money didn't mean anything and uh the other show would have been a show with my father when i saw jackson brown a number of years back so it was just him solo he had about 30 guitars on the stage and a couple pianos and people in the crowd shouted out requests and i i'd never seen that for you know an artist of his stature uh and it was kind of neat to see where someone you know yell out uh you know, whatever song it was, and he was ready to play something and they'd be like, doctor my eyes. And then, you know, he'd say, oh, okay, I could play that. And he'd put, you know, one guitar down and and then go and uh, sit down at the piano and play that song. So, and to think that was at a venue with, you know, 2,500 people. And yeah. that, that's what's so incredible about Massey Hall is that intimacy that, uh, you know, that that could happen somewhere with, you know, that many people in attendance. But nice. And, Uh, And then the Horseshoe, yeah, same as uh, Greg. So many shows, it's hard to tell. I mean, the Skydiggers Christmas ones were always, uh, you know, a great party and a lot of fun. But uh, probably for me, one of the – it was right around now, I think, uh, uh, how many years ago now, probably at least 10 or something or more, but I saw the Drive-By Truckers, uh, and they played, like, probably till almost 2 in the morning. It was one of those shows where (laughs) – you know, I can't remember who opened up, but I mean, they didn't go on till 1130, right? Like I can't imagine going out to a show like that uh, anymore, <laughs> but uh, it was just a fantastic show. And it was at the time when, you know, Jason Isbell, who has gone on to an amazing, you know, solo career. And I saw him at Massey hall was another great show, but he was in the band at that time. And so they had three incredible songwriters, three guitarists, and it, it was loud. And, uh, that was a, a pretty memorable night. Nice.
0: That's awesome. So I, I, before I go, David, before I forget, we're going to have to get you on two more times. Okay. One after uh, your book, Massey Hall <laughs> uh, is written. We'll get you on to talk about that. And Greg already knows uh, we're going to get you on uh, again <laughs> to do a, a deep dive into Neil Young. OK,
2: <laughs> uh, I, I was I was wondering I was wondering if he paid you to say that. That's why. Yeah, I was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was uh, my absolute
0: favorite. Uh, uh, I've, I've unfortunately only seen, seen him twice, twice, twice in concert. Once was when uh, Oasis opened up for him.
1: Oh, uh, at the uh, up in uh, Barry. Uh, Barry. Oh, I was at Park. that show. Yeah, I remember that. I I always wow. joke that uh, one of the. Uh, gallagher brothers there you know it was like come on show your appreciation i'm like yeah wait till neil and crazy horse comes out and then you show them some appreciation oh my goodness that was was fantastic yeah
0: i thought oasis was awesome but then all of a sudden neil comes on and the noise level just like tripled the crowd like all of a sudden tripled in size it was i was like wow and uh yeah. That was my first time seeing him. That I saw him, uh, I think it was at the ACC maybe three, four years ago. I saw him and, uh, I kick myself, uh, every time somebody brings up his Massey hall shows like Lanoi's mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. When he came and he did a festival just North of Toronto, maybe two, three years ago. Um, yeah. When he was traveling with, uh, with, uh, Willie Nelson's right. Yep. Um,
1: son's band Um, oh yeah i I love him i've chatted with uh, lucas and i've seen him a few times down at farm aid and at south by southwest and it's amazing his band i mean they channel crazy horse and they i think they've kind of you know made neil excited again to play that rock and roll so
0: yeah yeah that that yeah oh man Okay, Neil Young. I got to make sure I go. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got it. Another uh, episode, all on Neil. Yeah, yeah,
0: for sure, for sure. Um, my favorite shows were seeing uh, July talk at uh, at Massey Hall. Mm. Uh, they just put on a phenomenal show, and uh, I haven't been to the Horseshoe so many times. But uh, Greg mentioned uh, when Sait sort of uh, played there with uh, with you and Jefferson writing uh, the Prince. Uh, and the crooked, which are two other up-and-coming rock bands, but uh, mm-hmm. yes, some amazing music live for sure, especially in these more smaller, intimate venues. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think is where where music fans in Toronto are uh, really miss out if if they don't go
2: for sure for sure so before we finish it off i got a question for you first thing i need two things one when you talked about front row at massey hall it triggered actually an even better experience i had which was taking my little brother who was like 14 at the time Mm. and we sat front row for in excess before kick exploded oh wow that was that was incredible sorry um and I also realized I think I screwed up Steve's band name. I think I said Beyond the Floods" before the flood. So, Steve, yeah. I apologize. Anyway, um, so <laughs> the question that we'd like to ask our guests before we finish off is, what are you listening to lately? What's in your earbuds?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I go back. To, as I said, I, I collect vinyl. I, I probably have like, uh, you know, over 500 or more. And my kids laugh at me like, you know, it's in this digital age why I do that. So I go back and I'm listening to a lot of uh, classic stuff uh, still all the time. But in terms of new stuff, I mean, uh, I recently got the uh, the new Gord Downey, which I've been enjoying. Um, and beyond that, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, there's just so much great new music all the time. Uh, uh, what, what other ones have I, I bought or listened to? Uh, recently, well, like Julian Taylor, a Canadian, uh, used yes, to be in Staggered Crossing. I think his stuff's great uh, uh, in terms of that singer-songwriter, uh, William Prince. Uh, I think his album that came out earlier this year is fantastic. Uh, so I, I've kind of been more in that mode of kind of the, the singer-songwriter uh, folk stuff. But you know, I'm always yes. looking to discover new music, and I, I try and uh, I mean, my sons. Uh, I listen to some of the bands he's into these days, like he listens to uh, Water Park and uh, some of these other uh, groups. I, I kind of, uh, you know, didn't know a lot about. So, you Hmm. know, and same, even my daughter, she's more into the pop, uh, what's on the radio, and I try and give it a chance, but uh, you know, I I still (laughs) still prefer rock and roll. That's for sure.
2: It's funny. It's funny you say that because I think of my son, like, or not just my son, but my kids. More my son. He's got better taste than my daughter. Hopefully, she doesn't hear this. Um, yeah. But no, but exploring some new bands like even grandson and Lawrence, you know, two very different bands, but you know, two amazing young groups. Um, so it is. It's awesome to to start learning from our kids and mm-hmm. experiencing those different bands as well. Well
1: yeah. well, yeah, I mean, and I think of it that that's how I kind of get into some of the Neil Young. I mean, I I I picked up my dad's copy of her and you know jimmy buffett uh, who i'm a big fan of uh, you know same thing my dad had his records and uh, so it's neat when you you see that kind of uh, you can share your discoveries i mean they, they got to be ready and open to uh, to listen to them right and discover them on your own i find that's the challenge if you kind of say oh listen to this or you know they'll, they'll just tune out right and i, I yeah. Uh, that's a neat thing uh, about music, yeah. right? It, it it's timeless sometimes too, and you can always discover something new. So, absolutely
2: for sure,
0: David. Thank you so much for spending yes. some time with us.
1: No, really a pleasure. appreciate
0: it. Uh, the book is the legendary Horseshoe Tavern: A Complete History, and there, there's an upcoming book as well, Massey Hall: An Enduring Legacy. Uh, David, if people want to find out uh, more about uh, your book um, and what you're up to, where, where's the best place for them to uh, to go and stalk you digitally?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, wherever. Type my name on Google, Twitter. Uh, I'm at uh, McPherson.com, C-O-M-M. But uh, uh, the one thing I forgot to mention, which is uh, kind of neat, is uh the book was just released as an audiobook my horseshoe book uh awesome. about a month a month or so ago now so you know i know my wife is loves listening to audiobooks and it's become a lot more popular so if that's something uh, uh people are interested in yeah, they can check that out and i You'll was see- uh, yeah i was honored to have uh, jeff woods uh, yeah. uh narr- narrated it so uh, that's another way you can discover the book as well if if you want
2: And I will say, I will say, if you're gonna listen to the book, don't have your previous settings where you're flying through a business book at 1.25 set on (laughs) audible because (laughs) we're listening to it and my wife's like, I just can't stand this narrator. Like I I don't know if I can handle it because we're driving up to the cottage last weekend listening to it. And uh, and she goes, do you have your settings set to one to a faster speed? And I look and go, oh yeah, I saw like that. She goes, okay, that's that's Jeff Woods, okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just more, like Jeff like Woods on helium. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, awesome. Well, awesome. it's a
2: pleasure great. pleasure to have you on. Like a really like a, you know wanting to have you on for a while, and and so yeah. glad you joined us. So appreciate your your time and your thoughts and your your experiences and your stories.
1: No problem. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So thanks again. Thanks so much, David. Take care, David. Appreciate it. All right. You too. Have a good night, guys.